was hot. We were fighting over the where you could stand under the tube inside the Fred's building where the air conditioner was coming out. Chris Brown just kind of shoved me out of the way and said, "Go, won't you go pray or something? I'm going to stand right here where the air conditioner was coming out. This would be a nice place. And we had some mulch. He wanted to move in the parking lot. I said, well, we better put some young people out there because if I go out there, they'll just find me dead laying on the parking lot. So, and, I, and Cameron and, and uh, Mike and I looked out there and, and James Wynn just kind of, I showed him what I wanted done and he just kind of took it and, and did it uh, and just to see their hearts and after tearing down, you know, drive down the street now and see the old Fred sign up there, like Peter said, they, they just out there tearing it down and it was cool it, on a lot of levels, but so many people from both campuses, we were just overwhelmed and I want to thank those of you that could, whether you're here or at home. And even if you couldn't be there, just the fact that as a church, well, we want to see this happen. And we're excited that uh, it's beginning to happen. Savic, is, is one working on the light board at all? All right. We may just make this up as we go. It's a gift. I can do that. It's a gift. I do want to say, uh, mention a couple of things. You can go ahead and turn to John chapter 8 in your Bibles and or your devices. John chapter 8. You'll notice in your bulletin that they're having a thing next Sunday called Step Up Sunday, and you can pray about this week. Uh, maybe there's some areas that, that maybe the Lord would want you to serve, and you can sign up for those next Sunday, whether it's student ministry or children's ministry or uh, help with the worship team, uh, with greeting. There's a lot of different things that can go on, and you may have a new idea, a ministry that you want to start and you want to lead. That'd be cool as well. So you pray about that this week, and we're going to have the sign-ups uh, Next week, you may, if you're not in a small group, you may want to look into getting into that. A couple other things I do want to mention to you. Number one, uh, Wednesday nights, week from Wednesday, the 11th, we're going to start coming back together and it's midweek, just spend a little time together. If you want to come at 6 o'clock and eat with us, that's great. Uh, pink mango food is really good. But if you want to come at 6.30 and just be part of whether it's my Bible study or students across the street or children's ministry, just to we can spend a little time together midweek to encourage one another. So um, that's starting a week from Sunday. So if you're interested in the food part of it, uh, Rhiannon has a method by which I think you have to camp at Pink Flamingo and beg or something like that. I don't know exactly how that works, but uh, I know the food is good. That's for sure. Um, and then our Ethnos Men's Trip. If you've never been on one of our little mission trips, uh, men, you would genuinely benefit from this. They go up to Roach, Missouri. I don't know exactly what they're going to do this time. Chad Stewart can tell you he's heading this up. But they're going to go up to Roach, Missouri and do some work for uh, Ethnos 360. It's Matt and Star Arnold, our missionaries, and they've been our missionaries for a long time. They're a special group of people. So um, if you can be part of that, that would be great as well. So you pray about that. All right, turn to John chapter 8 if you haven't already. We continue our series in Jesus' Great I Am Statements. What we're going to look at this week and next week is Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, that seems pretty self-explanatory, and in some ways it is. But we want to make sure that we see this passage in the context of the book of John, the context of history, the context of Jesus uh, claiming deity. It's really important, and it's, it's also very moving when you study the Bible and, and you really get a, a true sense of everything that, that God wants us to take away from a passage. So... We've said this many times as a series, Jesus, the great I am. 
It's very important, again, context, historical, cultural, biblical context. His audience is what nationality? Uh-oh, we got to start all over again. His audience is what nationality? What are the They're Jewish. Let's all say that together. They are? Whoa! I, I think we found the right button. Have mercy. There is a God. All right, all right, I'm sorry. Wow. Pardon me while I... My retinas have just been singed. Thank you, ladies. Somewhere in between, go up just a little bit, we should be cool. Can we go up a little bit? Y'all just take a nap, we'll be right. There we go. Thank you. I really appreciate you guys. All right, their audience is Jewish. Now, the context of chapter 8, I want you to notice, uh, look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6. This is the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So these are the Jewish leaders, the elite of Judaism. Verse 6, that's who the they is. This they said, testing Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on, his ground with his, wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What you're going to see in context, we'll look at it in just a moment. What's going on in chapter 8 is a venomous wicked assault by the scribes and the Pharisees on Jesus publicly to discredit him before the Jewish people. That's all that's going on here. That's what they're interested in. Look at chapter 8 with me, and let's just read a little bit, starting in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. Please don't miss that. He's at the temple, probably in the courtyard, and what, what the crowd is at the temple, again, we'll talk about more about this in a moment, but this is a time when there are just hundreds of thousands of people are coming in Jerusalem for a particular feast. We'll talk about that in a moment. They're flocking to Jesus. Why? Because he's impressed them. They either saw about the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 or they've, they've seen other things. They've heard stories about walking in the water, different things and healing people. And, the, and they've heard him teach or they've heard something about him. And kind of like if Elvis came to town, especially now, if Elvis were to come to town, I know he's still alive. I know some of you don't believe it, but just think about that. Elvis is like an 85-year-old man. Oh, we are. Give him a good leg, all right. <laughs> Please don't do that again, all right? <laughs> I'll have to go home with someone else today, by the way. Mary and I were talking about that yesterday because we live, we live in Ewing Place, subdivision over here, and they finally, after several years, people keep stealing the signs off. You know how your subdivision has a name on it when you go in? and People keep stealing the signs. And finally, they put a new one up, and they put Ewing Place, but then they put little letters on the sign. Look like musical notes, EP. Well, what does that stand for? It ain't Ewing Place. It's Elvis Presley. And that's, I said, all right, they finally got it right because that's what his friends used to call him, me and others. We called him EP. Those that were really close, like me and George Klein, we called him E, but not ever none. I don't even know what I was talking about. All right. What was I talking about? So, let's go back to chapter 8. We'll do it that way. All right. So, Jesus went to Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple. People are flocking to him. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to see this guy. Uh, you'll see if you read through the other Gospels, some people just want to touch the hem of his garment. He's a special person. 
Many believe he's the Messiah, but they don't really understand what that means. They're confused. They want to know more about this Jesus of Nazareth guy. So they, they come to him. He sat down with this huge crowd around him, and he starts to teach them. Keep that in mind. It's going to be really important as we go through this. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, there they are, these wicked leaders. They brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in, in the midst, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Without me being gross, if she's caught in adultery in the very act, where's the man? Why didn't they bring him? Because they're not interested in handling the sin. They're interested in what? Embarrassing Jesus and attacking him. They said, and the one said, called him in the very act. Now Moses in the law, verse 5, commanded us that such should be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? This they said, testing Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. He stooped down and wrote with his finger like he didn't hear it. Verse 7. They continued asking him. He raised himself up and he said to them, this is really key, hang with me. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, no one knows what he wrote, but theologians over the years have speculated. This is pure speculation, so you can take a nap during this part. Some speculated that he was writing their names down, and the next to their names writing what? Their sins. Like, whoa, dog, come on. And it's possible. We don't know what, he could have been writing stuff from Scripture. Who knows what he was writing? We don't know. So we should leave it at that. He stooped, then wrote on the ground. Context will show you why that might be important in a moment. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. That is such a powerful point. You ought to, if you write in your Bible, put a star by that. Why was he the only one who stayed? Because he's the only one who could. When they start naming sins, who's the only one whose sins couldn't be named? Jesus. The only one with the capacity to condemn her does not. And the woman standing in the midst, and Jesus raised himself up. He saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours, the ones that brought you to me? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And what's Jesus' point? Again, we don't know what he wrote on the ground, but we do know the point that they got from it is that, ooh, we're guilty too. We're guilty like she's guilty. And notice they were all convicted by their conscience one by one. And they left one by one because they were convicted and didn't want to condemn someone else. The only one who stayed with the woman was Jesus. Because he's the only one in the group that was not, quote, convicted by his conscience. This is so important. Why was Jesus not convicted by his conscience? Because he had no sin by which he could be convicted. The reason Jesus' death on the cross works or is sufficient is because he was sinless. There have been a lot of martyrs throughout history. There have been a lot of, of great men and women that have given their lives for what they believed. And many tremendous human beings. But only one was God in the flesh who took the sins of the world on his back and said, it is finished, and died in our place. Substitutionary, atoning sacrifice was sufficient because of who he is. So he could have condemned her. Please notice, she's standing before 
the only one worthy to condemn her. And the judge says to her, I'll show you mercy. He doesn't condone her sin, does he? What does he say? I'm not going to condemn you. Now you go and sin no more. In other words, you did commit the sin, but I'm going to show you mercy. What were the scribes and the Pharisees wanting to show her? They wanted to have her killed. They wanted to stone her to death. Jesus said, I'm going to show you mercy. Ten times, as we get into chapter 8, Jesus is going to die for her. He's going to die for the scribes and the Pharisees. He died for me and you. During this dialogue, what's going to go on in chapter 8, ten times the scribes and the Pharisees are going to interrupt Jesus Christ. Again, trying to embarrass him, trying to catch him, trying to trick him in front of the people, discredit him in front of the people. They have no clue about what Jesus is talking about. They're not even interested, and they have no clue. They're only interested in their own self-righteousness, their own authority, their own hammer that they can hold over the people. And then look at verse 59 for just a moment. At the, when this is all said and done, 58 is that great verse that's on your outline. Before Abraham was, I am. What's verse 59 say? At the end of all this, what was their, what was their decision? <clears throat> We're going to kill him. We're going to kill him. He's got to go. Now, <clears throat> the context of Scripture, chapter 8, God doesn't do things accidentally. When this was written, there were no chapter, verse designations. It was just written. And I realize John's not writing a chronological account like Luke did, for example, a systematic chronological account. It's not a synoptic gospel like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it is placed here by the Holy Spirit for a reason. So, chapter 8 of John, which is what we're going to look at in the light of the world, is sandwiched between <clears throat> those of us who took math Chapter 8 would be between chapter 7 and chapter 9. Very good. Between chapter 7 and chapter 9. Chapter 7, which we'll talk about in a minute, is really important, is the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, or <clears throat> also called the Feast of Booths, B -W, not B-O-O-Z-E, although some of that probably was going on, but it's B-O-O-T-H-S, temporary dwelling places, also called tabernacles. Keep that in mind. They're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. That's chapter 7. Chapter 9 is the great story where Jesus heals the man with congenital blindness. He'd been blind since birth, and Jesus comes along and heals him. And here's the, here's the message of God and the Holy Spirit. Remember, what's the theme of the Gospel of John? To prove the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel, he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, he's the anointed one, on and on. Son of man, son of God. The, the message of the Gospel of John is that Jesus of Nazareth is God. Now worship him. Surrender to him. So chapter 7, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. Chapter 9, you have the healing of the man with congenital blindness. There's two things you're, that are being pictured for us here. In a very real sense. Particularly when you put, go back in history in this moment. Chapter 7, we'll see in a moment, with the Feast of Tabernacles is saying to them, you're looking at God. Because the whole thing about the Feast of Tabernacles was the presence of God in the wilderness as he led them from salvation in Egypt to the Promised Land. 
that God's presence was with, with them the whole way. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what they're celebrating, the presence of God. Chapter 9, where he heals the man with congenital blindness, is the power of God. Who's the only one that can heal someone with congenital blindness? Who's the only one that can really heal someone, miraculously heal them? It's God. So when Jesus was, everybody knew the guy was blind. There was no doubt. He'd been there, that same pool his entire life. Everybody knew he was blind. And Jesus was the only one who could heal him, and he did. It's a great story. I'll give you some homework these week. Read John chapter 9. You'll be excited about it. The presence of God, the power of God. So let's talk for a moment about the Feast of Tabernacles because it's really cool. That's what's going on in chapter 7 leading into chapter 8, the light of the world. We'll get to that maybe next week, but we'll get there. All right. Feast of Tabernacles. It was a seven-day feast. Keep that picture in your mind. A whole week of celebrating. Huge crowds would come into Jerusalem, and they would live in booths, B-O-O-T-H-S. They would come in, they would take branches of trees and, and make themselves temporary dwelling places for a week. Like you and I might go camping and sleep in a tent if we're dumb. We did that for a number of years when I first came to the church till Chris Ellison, in his wisdom, built the condo. And from that moment forward, I never slept in another tent. So they would come in and they would set up temporary dwelling places and they would live in them for seven days. Huge Jews, incredible crowds would come to Jerusalem. The reason they would do that is they were celebrating what their forefathers had to do in their wilderness journey from, from Egypt, where they Passover, they were set free. Salvation. Ultimately, they're going to, they were headed to the promised land, eternal life. In between is the wilderness journey. We would call that sanctification, justification, sanctification, ultimately glorification. So what they're celebrating here is God's presence carrying them to the promised land after he set them free in Egypt. All of that, God, did, God does not do things accidentally. God is a God of order. He's picturing himself for us. The whole thing with the Jews, God called them out from Abram, Isaac, Jacob, children of Israel. God called them to reveal himself to a pagan world through the Jews. Now he does it through the church. You ought to be excited about that. That's who we are. We're in Christ. We have that opportunity to save the world. Let me tell you who God really is. Not who you think, but who he really is. So that's what they're doing. Just like their forefathers lived in temporary dwelling places, tabernacles, they're doing the same. In chapter 6 of John, I am the bread of life. What was that a picture of? Manna in the wilderness while they were wandering. Chapter 9. He's going to say, I am living I will give you living water out of your being. Where did they get water in the wilderness? Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, struck the rock, but what did God provide them out of a rock? Water while they were in the wilderness. So you see all three. Chapter six is bread, manna in the wilderness. Chapter nine is water in the wilderness. And then chapter eight, our text for today, is he provided light. Please We'll miss the context. It's important. Everything about the Feast of Tabernacles for that whole week. Now that's going on just prior to chapter 8. That's going on in chapter 7. Everything about it, that whole seven days, is a reminder of the Exodus and the journey in the wilderness. Each day, they would take a pitcher of water from the Pool of Siloam, 
seven days, and they would pour it over the altar in the temple as a reminder of the water in the wilderness. Look at chapter 7 for just a moment, verse 37. 737. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. On the last day, that great day of the feast, now, they've been doing this for seven days. Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Is there any doubt if you were in that crowd and you were Jewish in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles and they knew what they were doing every day as they poured that water from the pools of, the, of Siloam, on the altar and Jesus stands up on the last day as they're probably doing that and he says if you want living water come to me and I'll give it to you is there any doubt he was claiming to be God none whatsoever I've told you many times theologians who say Jesus never claimed to be God they have one glaring problem what is it they can't read clearly that's what he's saying I'll give you living water not just water from the pool of Siloam I'll give you living water because that's what it pictured God took care of them. A provision, reminder of the provision of God, the water from the rock on the last day. Isaiah says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus said, I am the Savior. So each evening during this feast they would, they would light two giant candelabras. They call them menorahs. You see them at Hanukkah. You'll see them everywhere. They, they would light two giant menorahs during this Feast of Tabernacles. Each evening for seven nights, seven days, these things were lit and they were so large they illuminated the entire temple area and most of Jerusalem. That's big candelabras. The temple court and most of Jerusalem. And in the middle of that, what does Jesus say? As it's ending, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. You think this is light? Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. So what were they celebrating with the light? This is so cool. You go back and you're reading the book of Exodus. After God delivers them from Egypt, they're headed toward the promised land. And he has them, he guides them with what? pillar of cloud and a pillar of what? Fire. It guided them. The presence of God, that's what it represented to them. It protected them from the armies of Egypt and it was a provision. God provided for them and it was God's presence. It provided them warmth at night. It was about two million Jews on this journey. During the daytime in the wilderness it would get to be about 150 degrees and at night it would get to be below zero. God was taking care of them. Exodus 13, the Bible says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. In other words, they could look every day out in front of them and what did they see? The presence of God. God's with us. God will take care of us. God will provide for us. God will protect us. God will feed us. It's really culturally and historically during the Feast of Tabernacles they would leave one light unlit for the coming of the Messiah. Can you see Jesus standing up and saying I'm the light of the world? 
the one you're waiting on, I'm here. Because later on, if you read through the Gospels, when Jesus goes into uh, the synagogue and he reads from Isaiah 61 as a visiting rabbi, he reads Isaiah 61. He's, I get goosebumps every time I think about that passage. He reads Isaiah 61. He sets the scroll down, and you know what he said? Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. You just heard God speak to you. I'm the one that heals. I'm the one that can give you life. I am the one Isaiah is talking about. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the one that talked to Abraham. I don't want to talk to Moses. I'm the light of the world. Feast of Tabernacles. Celebrating all week. And they didn't even know. They were missing the, the whole point of the celebration. Because of the scribes and the Pharisees primarily. So in verse 12, Jesus stands up and says, I'm the light of the world. During this feast, they would dance. They would sing. They had orchestras playing for seven nights. And then Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Number one on your handout. We'll look at what does it mean receiving Jesus as light. Receiving Jesus as light. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The word then, there in verse, I know somebody said, he can make a whole sermon out of one stupid word. I won't do that. The word then simply means after the woman caught in adultery and the scribes and the Pharisees had left one by one. Nobody's left. And after Jesus sends her away, it says then Jesus spoke to them and said, they're coming to him again to be taught. I'm the light of the world. All those people that had come to him at the temple come to him again. Remember they're Jewish. The picture I got as I was studying this was Jesus was teaching this huge crowd, and he's rudely interrupted by the Pharisees. Takes care of that, and they leave. It's kind of like you go and say, okay, now where was I? Oh, yeah, I am the light of the world. Everything you're celebrating, happened. you just finished celebrating, that's me. Let's get back to what I'm teaching you. I'm the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. Look at verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple, and all the people came to him. Why'd they come to him one more time? Because they knew he was special. They didn't, know, they didn't get it yet, but they knew he was special. I'm the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. I illuminate all human beings. Now hang on with this. We'll talk, we're going to talk about each word as we walk through this. But big picture, when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, it means he illuminates every human being that's ever walked on planet Earth, non-believers and believers, he illuminates human beings with something no, nothing else in the universe has. The image of God. What's the only thing God created in his own image? It's me and you. And people you know. Lost or saved. Believer or non-believer. Christian or not. They have a moral conscience. They have intelligence. They have the capacity to think, to emote, to create. What sets human beings apart from the rest of the universe? It's not an evolutionary leap. It's the fact God created us in his image. We have a soul and a spirit. We don't operate just on instinct. We 
know there's right and wrong out there. Even people who are not believers have a moral conscience. Now, it's seared a lot of times by our society and the culture that we live in, just like it was in, in think about Sodom and Gomorrah, think of like as it was in the days of Noah, how bad it was, that they thought, everything they thought about was evil continually. That's pretty bad. And human race has always decided that we're going to worship Romans chapter 1. We're going to worship the creation instead of the, instead of the creator. We're going to walk in darkness instead of in light. What Jesus said in John 3, men love darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. But we have the capacity to understand right and wrong. We know that it exists. Where did it come from? God put it in us. There's a vacuum in us that he put there, Augustine talked about, that only he can fill. We were created for him. So when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, it begins with that moral perception, a conscience. We know that there's something bigger than us out there, despite the fact we try to, as a culture, try to ignore it and not accept it. And the other, the other aspect of this, we'll see as we walk through, is so important. When Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, what that literally means in the original, the way it's written and structured here, is that in me... As light, there is no what? Darkness. What is darkness, by the way, by definition? Webster or anybody else, what is darkness? It's the absence of light. It's the absence of light. So beyond illuminating every human being that walks the planet, then for those of us who are his followers, Christians, believers, he gives to us spiritual insight and spiritual life because we are his followers. He gives us light that non-believers don't have. Why do we share the gospel? Because we've been changed. Why do we share the gospel? Because we know who God is. Mary and I were talking about this yesterday. I don't know how it came up, but I think it's something I did wrong in 1970, but I think that's how it came up. She said, you remember 1970, April 1970. That's when you got saved. She remembers that. That's, she doesn't remember how good I looked, but she remembers April 1970. I said, yeah. And I still remember the guy sitting me down in that little wooden church chair and explaining that. And I'd been in church my whole life. No one had ever explained the gospel to me. And it was so simple, yet so profound that this is who Jesus is. And that's what I want. And man, it changed me immediately. I'm not perfect 51 years ago, and I'm still not perfect. I won't be. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's not me. It's Christ in me. Christ in me is my hope of glory, not Randy's good looks or good works. I struggle in both areas. It's Christ in me. That's the illumination part. You ever find yourself, I don't want you to raise your hands, because, but I think many of you do. I know I do. With people that are in your family that are not Christians, do you ever find yourself just saying, Lord, open their eyes, please, so they can see what they're missing? If you don't use me, Lord, use somebody else, but please, open their eyes. I want to see them have the joy that I have. It, it may not be your family. It may be somebody you work with. Maybe somebody you play ball with. Maybe just friends. 
because we have an understanding about eternity, about the meaning of life, what it means we've been set free and illuminated. Years ago, we're talking about when someone became a Christian, two things they would say about them is number one, they got religion, which I hated, and number two, they have seen the light. And the second one, I think, is a great metaphor. You finally get it. That he's the light of the world. That he's the most incredible presence that's ever walked planet Earth. Why? Because he's the light of the world. One of the other aspects of this, we've seen the moral perception, all human beings, conscience, intellect. For those of us who have been born again, we've been set free. We've been given spiritual insight. We're not better than anybody else. We just understand. We've seen it, seen the light. The other thing is, you step back, big picture, when you're sharing your faith, a lot of times this is where you have to begin. He's the light of the world because he created light. Go back and read Genesis. In the beginning, which means when there was nothing at all, it was God. In the beginning, God created. He created light because he is light. He created life because he is life. You can go on and on. The, whole, the prologue to this book, we spent several weeks on it. He's the light and he's the life of men. All right, let's take a moment and look at a couple of these words. Just in verse 12, that's all we're going to look at today. We're not even going to finish that. I am, I am the light of the world. Okay, light. We talked a lot about it. Just a couple more things and then we're done. Remember the context. These Jews have been celebrating light for a week. God's presence with them, his deliverance. Also, as Jesus, it's, it's kind of interesting again, that Jesus is teaching this, it's probably around sunrise. What a great metaphorical teaching moment, right? By the way, you see the sun that's rising over there? I hung it in. I hung it there. I put that sun there. I love read the, read the creation account and you read about God did this, God did that. And then the Bible says, oh yeah, by the way, this is uh, my translation. Oh yeah, by the way, he made the stars also. That's what it says, he made the stars also. Think about it. We're, to this day. And I love to sit out at night and just look at the sky. I love to sit on the ocean down, down in Destin at, at night. I don't like it during the day, it's too hot. But I love to go down there at sunset and just sit there, watch the sunset, listen to the water, and think this is just one speck on this planet, which is one speck in the universe, and my God spoke it into existence. Jesus said, I am. How does John begin his book? In the beginning, before there was anything else, was the Word. And then later on, he tells us the Word became flesh. That's why I love this book so much. It puts it all together. I am light. I created light. You want to have light? How about going to the guy who created it? He spoke it into existence. He hung the stars. So at sunrise, he could sit back and say to them, I am the God who put that sun there for you. If you read through the Old Testament, God makes it clear on a couple of occasions that every time you look up in the sky and you see the sun, it's a reminder what? I'm here. When you see the moon, it's a reminder what? I put it there. You see the stars, it's a reminder that I'm here. 
And I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You got to trust me. I'm not going to let you down. You trust me. You go back in the Old Testament, the word light is a constant, repetitive reference and allusion to God. So when you think about light from our perspective, number one, there in your handout, it's essential for life. Psalm 27, the Bible says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I love that verse. Because as human beings, we tend to worry and to fear. And what did the psalmist say? You got God. He's your light, your salvation. Why are you fearing? It's essential for life. But it's also the essence of the nature of God. 1 John says, this is the message which we have heard from him, God, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Psalm 119, very well-known verse, says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Go back to the Old Testament, go back to Exodus again, you see the cloud, the pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory of God in the tabernacle and then in the temple. It was illuminated when you went into the Holy of Holies. What was it illuminated by? There was no artificial light in the Holy of Holies. It was illuminated on one day a year on the Day of Atonement. And what illuminated it? The presence of God illuminated it. Why? Because he's the light of the world. It's a kind of glory. The face of Moses. <coughs> After Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he's been with God and he comes down with the law, what does it, what does it say about his face? He'd been in the presence of God. And what does his face, his face was what? Glowing. He'd been in the presence of God. The Mount of Transfiguration. When uh, uh, Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, did they want to leave, by the way, after that was all? What do they want to do? Said, Jesus, why don't we hang out here? And let's build some altars to worship. They were overwhelmed. And when you see that light of God, that glory of God, always unapproachable light, when you talk about the glory of God in the Old Testament, it's always referenced as unapproachable light. And people always fall before God in worship at the light. Almost every Jewish celebration, and I can't think of one that doesn't, Celebrates with light. Hanukkah, they celebrate around, the, obviously, in December. Hanukkah is also known as what? Anybody know? Festival of Lights. That's what it's called. Revelation 21, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, talking about eternal state, the future. Talking about the New Jerusalem. It said, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved, not just Jews, but Gentiles, those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. And the idea is you don't need the moon, you don't need the sun, and you don't need any other artificial light because you have what? When we get there, we have the light of the world, the Lamb of God. Our Savior will illuminate it for us. I think what I want to do, I think I want to stop there today. I want us, as the worship team comes up, let's bow our heads in prayer for just a moment. Lord, we thank you as, as we study scripture and just as we pour into it, 
you remind us, even passages that are very familiar to us, phrases like, I'm the light of the world. I know in my own life, over the last two weeks, you've just um, you've really touched my soul about how special it is to be a child of yours. And as we'll see next week, you even say to us that you're the light of the world. Man, because we have Christ in us. We don't hide our light. We put it on a hill where people can see it. Lord, I, for Randy, I, I'm grateful. I know others are as well. I pray for everybody that's here or can hear my voice. And if nothing else, just stop, meditate on how special it is that the light of the world is my Savior, mine. He died for me. We're grateful, Father. But it needs to go beyond being grateful to being useful in praying for opportunities to tell others about the light of the world in a loving, gentle, respectful, compassionate way. Talk to them. Listen to them. Why do you reject Jesus? Do you even know who he is? Let me tell you how much he loved you. I pray for opportunities to do that for all of us. All of us. That we'd be serious about it. And then we would seek those out. Not to preach to anyone, but to tell another beggar where he can find food like we did. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who's the light of the world. We pray in his name. Amen. If you're here, please stand as we close out our time together.